0: Why would you want to be a bank right now? Why would you want to be a bank for the simple reason that banking is becoming commoditized? The one thing platforms are going to do is they are going to commoditize banking services. And the dirty little secret of banking is they always were commodity services. Why would you want to get into banking now? What was it that neobanks think they've got or thought they had that made that make
1: sense? this is a, a little bit of an onion in why. I think the opportunity that the banks saw were a very low performance by the traditional banks on a variety of digital scores, whether it's net promoter scores or the mobile experience or the level of digital offerings or the ability to you know, open an account or the various fee levels across the different product areas, which were frankly fat and allowed for economic profits to be taken away. And I think that was the motivator five to 10 years ago. Today, it's certainly not the case. Today, most of the financial incumbents have, if not matched on the mobile experience, then at least have created the impression of having tried to match on the mobile experience. And so just the the novelty of a bank in your phone, I think, has in large part gone away, but that has happened as a result of these apps pushing. One layer down is why do you want to be a bank from a regulatory perspective, not just a financial app perspective. And I think the answer is to make money, which is that if you are a financial app that is putting people into the equivalent of a current account or a prepaid card, then with each customer, you lose money. I mean, that's the start and end of it. And so if you want economics that are equivalent to what a bank makes per customer, which is usually several hundred, if not several thousand dollars per customer, then you need to hold their deposits and you need to lend them out. It doesn't work to either hope that on a freemium subscription model you'll make up those economics, or by cross selling it to some other non existent product, you'll make up those economics. And so I think for a lot of the neobanks, they had gotten to a scale that's large enough of a couple of million of users and then looked around and said, What are our paths to monetization? Can we try to do the balance sheet bit? And I think you see in the U.S., for example, VARO getting a banking license. You, you continue to see SoFi, Square, trying to get into the balance sheet side of the business. I think Revolut has a Lithuanian license that it's passported into some parts of the EU. Monzo's got, I think, a, a limited license. They haven't really gotten into the lending business as, as largely as they could, but I think that's one of their few paths to revenue. And as you know today, they make about 30 quid per customer. Their enterprise value is about a 1,000 quid per customer. That's the danger. That's the risk.
0: Well, the problem is that it's a commodity service. And as a commodity service, it's being disintermediated. I mean, we've had you know news of banks signing up with big tech companies to provide banking services, but they're not going to have the front end. The front end is going to be big tech.
1: Yeah, well, I think... This has played out the other way with the Manzos and the Revoluts where they have already acquired the customer base. So I don't see the neobanks being disintermediated by the tech companies necessarily because they started with the audience. They've already built the audience by giving away hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital funding through you know, prepaid card accounts and so on. And now they want that commoditized banking stuff in order to try and make some money. I think the, the, what you're saying is totally right in that the tech companies, for them, this game is much easier. They don't need to get 10 million users because they can just have an audience of a billion users plug into a banking-as-a-service platform. And so I think the growth of these platforms is very much in danger because a native Apple card that has a relationship with Goldman Sachs is going to be far more powerful than any Starling account that you can offer.
0: Well, as Robert Redford famously said to Paul Newman, what do we do now, Butch? How do you move a neobank from one that offers a funky-looking credit card or a funky-looking app on a phone into a full-blown bank offering services that actually will make them some money?
1: I can't say I have sufficient equity in a neobank to really care to answer that question rigorously. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's, there's a couple of playbooks that people have been trying to execute on, and we know which ones work and which ones don't. So the marketplace playbook, which says, I, as the neobank, acquire millions of users, I provide them a bank account, and then I have a tab in my app for a whole bunch of other services we know that that strategy doesn't really work and we know this from the starling and from the monzo annual reports where it you know there there's no meaningful revenue from providing these tacton services and i think there's a confusion with the eastern super apps like and financial or like wepay which are money movement apps or their payment apps which power a whole ecosystem of things like You know, the Chinese version of Uber and Netflix and Amazon and so on and Spotify. And the reason those things work is that they're literally 100 times larger than Revolut. They're the tech superstar in the operating system for for all of the software. And so the marketplace approach in the UK, I don't think will scale fast enough. So then number two is the cross-sell. Into adjacent services. So, not just the bank account, but the money movement and the wealth management account and the trading account and the insurance account and the mortgages and so on. SoFi and N26, I would say, are the clearest examples of the strategy. In that you might also think about Square and Cash App being another example, doing both point of sales and point of sales processing, but then also money movement between individuals, Bitcoin trading all in one app, generating pretty chunky revenue. So I think there is a path through the cross-sell and this recreates the mega bank corporation of the 1980s, You know, the, the city with all of the products in a mobile app, but I still don't think that's gonna do enough. So I think you're either in a place where you have to go much deeper into how much lending you do you can't scale away from these costs. I mean, some of these things I think are permanently flawed. But you try to aggregate the Revolut and the Robinhood together. You know, so for example, Robinhood, which is the free trading app, made 300 million in the first half of this year, getting paid by high-frequency trading shops for order flow. They still lost money, but they did make this revenue. Revolut made 160 million. And lost 110 or 105 million. You can imagine stacking these audiences together and creating a place where it's free FX, it's free trading, it's free asset allocation. Let's say it's got 50 million or 100 million users in the US and the UK. And I think then you can start getting to break even.
0: We are just talking about starting to get to break even. We're not talking yes. about businesses that actually make money at this stage. Where does this leave the competitive position of fintech?
1: It depends what you mean uh, uh, by fintech. I think if you mean B2C fintech focused around scaling up these unicorn footprints in a fairly sensitive cost position, where if they have a large enough audience, then they'll continue to raise money or they will entirely swap out their own infrastructure for maybe BBDA's open banking infrastructure, you know, they could just be lead generation for other companies. That's not going to get them the multi-billion dollar valuations. Alternately, they can try and keep going into more exotic asset classes and services. And, you know, in large part, this is my thesis is that we're going to see the fintechs look much more seriously at decentralized finance and the blockchain-based financial services ecosystem where you are seeing new types of asset classes that are very hard for traditional banks to even get their head around or even touch, let alone think about offering to clients. And I think for many fintechs, this is... For the B2C fintechs, it's an existential moment to monetize their customers, which is why you see SoFi and Revolut and Square and Robinhood offer crypto trading where something like a third or a quarter of their revenues comes from crypto trading. And if you look at Coinbase, Coinbase is not losing money as far as we know. Coinbase has 30 million user accounts, they claim. About 30 billion under custody, they claim. You know, you can compare that to about two billion in deposits for a Revolut, and you know, I think the the latest public figures around Coinbase were a revenue number somewhere between 500 million and a billion. Which is that is not a startup. That's a pretty pretty nasty company in terms of um, success. And so, I do think fintechs will have to direct their user bases to continue to be novel or you know, fold into banking infrastructure as it is today.
0: That's one thing that we will see more of, I'm sure, is we've had a burst of enthusiasm and a slew of businesses launched, some of which have good ideas, some of which have great ideas. They're not all going to survive. There's going to be an agglomeration within the sector. There are also going to be, if valuations come back down to realistic levels, there's going to be investment by existing banking businesses in cherry picking some of these operations over. But for them to continue to expand and for them to make money, they, as you say, they're going to have to go into these areas which are, for some of us who are hard of thinking, new and unusual.
1: That's the point for them to continue to innovate. I think 15 years ago, digital lending was seen as something risky and new, and today digital lending couldn't be more boring with Goldman's, Marcus, probably one of the biggest digital lenders out there. Similarly, robo-advice and online wealth management was seen as unsafe and not the place where as a high net worth investor you would put your core holdings, and today at least in the US, Betterment and Wealth Wealthfront have lots and lots of mass affluent and high net worth customers. And so these things get boring and then they need to find an edge again or they need to sell. You know, I think we're leaving out a whole swath of fintech, which is kind of enabling middle office stuff. So artificial intelligence for fraud or better trading systems or CRM or collateral management software. And I think there's a lot of incremental efficiency Stuff that will continue to build reasonable businesses that can be backed by private equity and so on. But that's not going to be getting the headlines for kind of what's splashy and on the edge. I do also think that we are much further down the line of the tech companies having annihilated the banks than people realize. When you pick up your phone, you already bank with a tech company. You don't, nobody cares about what they, what bank brand they have it's like do you care what um brand of paracetamol you get in the pharmacy no it's just generic so when you pick up your phone whether that's an apple phone or an android phone the tech company reads your reads your face using artificial intelligence in order to authenticate you into an app in its operating system and essentially when you're looking at a Barclays or an HSBC app you're an apple user and they give you the bank product. And when you use your phone to pay, doesn't matter if it's Barclays or HSBC, you're using your Apple phone to pay. And I think these behaviors are unbelievably destructive to any pretense the banks can have about owning their customer. The other criticism is often, well, Retail doesn't matter. You know, we we care about our, the institutional business, or we care about wholes, wholesale banking, or we manage a, a large pension, and therefore, who cares about the small accounts? I, I, the world has inverted in that you know it was very much about catering to the wealthy client, the institutional client, and then giving small bits and pieces to your retail clients, and then charging them fees, and that's been completely inverted. So. Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, well, this might be an assumption, and Warren Buffett all have the same smartphone as any kid on the street. The retail experience is the best experience, is the world that we live in. It's actually interesting that for a lot of private banks, their web experience, their digital experience is worse than what you would get investing 5K. That's going to reverberate for quite a while, but um, I think it's fairly dangerous.
0: It is certainly for that sector of the, uh, of the banking industry. But as you say, nobody is loyal to a bank, Brian. And indeed, why should they be? Because banks, by and large, tend not to be loyal to their customers. I'm talking about their retail customers.
1: Is that a prompt? Is that a rhetorical statement? I mean, I think that it is important for there to be money. And humans have things they do with value that's repeatable and in our DNA, and that is to move information and data around and to move value around and to be able to pay people and use money as a shortcut for exchange and to have a unit of account. And then once you move money around, after a while it stops, so it needs a place to rest. And once your money is resting somewhere, it should earn an interest rate or it should be invested, it should be traded, it should be part of an asset allocation, and then it can fund your financial planning and your retirement and protect you from risks. You know, so these functions are the same today as they were 100 years ago, as they will be 100 years from now. And so it's not that we need banks, it's that we need technologies that solve these problems, and banks are one technology to solve this problem. Digital monies could do all those things without a bank layer. And so you know, a directly issued central bank digital currency, for example, could travel on blockchain rails. It could sit and accrue interest that is algorithmically decided by a regulator or sovereign authority or a group of countries together. It could be plugged into trading networks or lending networks in a way that is far, far more direct than the system we have today. And I think we're now in the negotiation of what all of those rails look like.
0: Can you put a timescale on that? Because we are potentially on the cusp of doing away with the currencies we've got, doing away with the banking system we've got. That may be putting it a bit strongly, but there is change coming. How fast do you see that happening?
1: I love talking about the future, and <laughs> um, you know, but at the same time I have the kind of a training of an analyst and I try to be cynical about some of the things that are claimed and finding a way to reason about this stuff and anchor in reality. And so the, you know, the best you can do is find metaphors and analogies that have happened in other industries, and then to find symptoms that either prove or disprove what it is that you think is happening and take the points that disprove your argument more seriously than the points that prove it. I think the symptoms that we're seeing now is just generally much more direct holding of all financial instruments by people than ever before, you know so. It's everything from the concept of during COVID, the government, would, you know, at least in the U.S., sent funds to individuals to supplement their their income. Doing that through a payment rail versus a central bank digital currency feels very close together. A lot of that actually came through Square, through the fintechs. Similarly, the government sent funds to small businesses, disintermediating banks, and then you can look also at the capital markets where many tech firms today choose to do a direct listing rather than go through an investment bank. And so a direct listing means that you're not using a third party to build a book or to you know, like aggregate investor for yourselves. So even on the institutional side, there is a much more close relationship between the investor and the financial instrument. And then you can start looking into Facebook Libra. You can start looking into... Uh, what's happening with the Chinese digital currency, which in large part is—it's a national priority to both de-dollarize and to compete on artificial intelligence and blockchain, as as if it were a race to the moon. And so, I can see really rapid progress. I can I can sketch out a vision of the world within five years that has digital monies embedded either into the banking system or into some form of welfare or some sort of small business lending. I can definitely see that happening. Probably not first in the West, probably first in the East. And I think if you were to put a real time frame on the total transformation of the infrastructure, then it's probably a 20, 25 year time horizon. And that sounds long, but this is how long it took Amazon. Right. So today, Amazon represents about 10% of U.S. commerce.
0: Yes, I met Jeff Bezos once. He had a laugh like a hyena, and I really don't blame him.
1: <laughs> he's, uh, he's feasted.
0: <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Lex, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.